0: Welcome to Ordinary Life. I'm glad to see you guys. Before we begin, we've had the practice recently of just beginning with a little bit of silence. And in that silence, we're present to sacred mystery right here, right now. Our hope is to know who we are in sacred mystery and who sacred mystery is in us, and this is our intention in ordinary life as well, just bringing that right here. Our prayer to sacred mystery is, may we be here, may we see, may we know who we are in you and who you are in us, May we grow so that we can participate co-creatively in the life of this world. May all creation benefit from what we do here. And remember that no matter who you are and no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I um, am really excited to introduce one of my oldest friends to y'all today who's also just doing amazing work in the world. So he's not here because he's one of my oldest friends, but that's a bonus um, that I have really smart and creative and really active friends. So this is Jaime Gonzalez. Um, This is a picture of us from 20 years ago. Um, Not just us, we are the ones circled in red. That's um, my 25th birthday, mine and Katie's 25th birthday. Yeah, so Jaime, Jaime is married to a friend of mine who I grew up playing soccer with. So I sort of inherited Jaime and it's really great that I like him because he, it, this could end up him teasing me the entire time. We're a, a little bit like siblings. We definitely fight each other on points and then we hog and make up and it's all fine. Um, but Jaime's been, a, he's a biologist, an environmental educator. He's been active in the Houston community for a long time. Before I met you, Mm -hmm. you were working at the Arboretum, right? Then the Katy Prairie Conservancy, Mm -hmm. and now the Nature Conservancy. But there was there something in between that I'm missing.
1: Grad school, but grad school. That's okay. it's all good. Yeah,
0: grad school happened. Um, So Jaime is a climate activist. He is an educator in environmentalism, and works really hard to. It's a lot of what I think we're trying to tell this story of cosmology, trying to see the human as a part of nature, not as separate from. And this I think is part of, I would say it's spiritual for you, but you'll speak more on that. So I'm really excited you're here and I'm glad you get to drop some knowledge on us (laughs) and help us to become better ancestors. Today we're orienting this time around what does it mean to become good ancestors? What does it mean for all of us sitting in here to create a world that we can imagine our kids and our kids' kids and our friends' kids and our friends' kids' kids living in? So will you tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about your spiritual background and kind of how that's led you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, and first of all, thank you all for for having me here today. Obviously, you know, Holly's not like a sister. She's a sister (laughs) to me um her beautiful boys or my godsons. And so
0: That's true. They said, "Now yes, we'll do that. We'll be your guardians if anything ever happens to you all, but now you and Josh can't ever travel together again." That's
1: right. That's, right. So. that's right. That's right. <laughs> but I think it goes it, it, you know, my uh I want to say one other thing before I get started. This is only the second time that I've ever been asked to speak about how my faith intersects with my work. Um, And that's very common in the conservation and environmental space. Um, We tend to be pretty focused on science and there's this kind of false separation between faith and science that uh, many of us are looking to overcome. So what I'm saying today is very personal and it's not um, on behalf of any group that I'm affiliated with, either my employer or the boards of directors that I'm on. It's really a personal story, but it is a bigger story to have, which is how can we, people of faith, have better connectivity to those who are working to protect the rest of nature, as as Holly was saying. So my journey is um, like many of yours, lots of twists and turns. I will say that I grew up in a house that was kind of split between a very deeply and very conservative evangelical bent and a Roman Catholic bent. And so in many ways, there was a, a really high degree of certainty Um, as to the belief that you could really understand the universe in God's mind and things like that. Now, you guys are talking about sacred mystery. I love that. As I grew older, what I found out that my journey in nature and my faith journey were really not parallel. They were actually intersected like DNA strands. And what I mean by that is, as I got older, I found that the grayness of life told me that yeah, maybe we can't really discern everything about the sacred Right? And maybe that's not the whole point. And as I spent more and more time in nature up in the Aldine Greenspoint area where I grew up, nature always has a way of humbling you, of teaching you new things. And just when you think you figured her out, uh, she's there to say, you have seen just the smallest inkling of how this actually works. So I think both of those things, like I said, they intersect in a way that leaves me in this space for accepting and celebrating that mystery. And as I stepped away from the church for a while um, and then reacquainted myself with faith in a more kind of expansive uh, space that allowed me to talk about uncertainty, um, I think it was, I came back with a renewed sense that the work that I was doing in nature was very intersected, even here in the middle of the city, uh, with my faith. And, and how we perceive infrastructure in the city. You know, I told somebody the other day that every time that we build in or rebuild nature or save nature, we're saving a piece of public health infrastructure. That's what it is. And I think during the pandemic, we've really seen that. People have been craving and using natural spaces in ways that are both uplifting, but not surprising. It's a place of centeredness. So every time we put in a A pocket prairie or a garden or a tree I tend to think of those as places that are like antenna for God that's the places that we go on vacation to hear the clearest whispers of God Mm. right so it's not just that we're putting in nature to meet all these needs for climate adaptation human physical and mental well-being it really is so we can hear the voice of God more loudly And there are some neighborhoods, and we'll talk about this later, where that ability is not there because they have inequitable access to nature. And so as faith communities, just thinking about where we place these pieces of spiritual infrastructure in the city is really important to me.
0: Hmm. I love that, where we go to hear the whispers Hmm. of God. And truly, it's all around us. Some of my most kind of glorious moments during this time of uh, pandemic and being more at home and more sitting and still and stillness really was right. being in my yard and just listening to the birds and this is a That's major right. migratory path for That's right. for many birds so That's right and you have something about that later mm-hmm. but one of the things I hear you talk a lot about is the power of storytelling yeah and the power of narrative and the work that you do and yeah. recently Jaime gave me this book um what kind of ancestor do you want to be I have not finished reading it, but I did dive into it this week. It's a book full of poetry and essays and interviews around people who are doing climate work, who are Mm -hmm. doing environmental work, who are thinking about what does it mean to create a world for the future. And it's really, anyway, Wendell Berry, there's a great interview with Wendell Berry in it. And so stories are how we've come to understand ourselves in this Mm -hmm. great context. You hear Bill and I talk a lot about, and of course Bill says, none of these were literal, all of them were true. These stories help us to understand and orient ourselves in, on this earth, in this place, in our context with one another. And they say that in trauma work, when communities and individuals get to tell stories, that the trauma literally moves through the body. It's when it gets stuck, when our imaginations and our ability to tell stories get stuck, That the trauma finds a place to live and stay so stories are part of healing and i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what role storytelling plays in the work you're doing yeah yeah
1: so storytelling is is paramount to the work that i'm doing Um, so just a real uh, brief snapshot of what i'm called to do in my my daily work um, is i'm called to look at where we can work with community and for community to in place nature to help with the catastrophic flooding that we have, to help with the increasingly hot city that we have. Um, You and
0: your family were among the people I remember texting y'all during Harvey, and you were on a kayak going to Katie's uh, parents' house, trying to get to, yeah.
1: Absolutely. We've, you know, we are the poster child for climate, um, the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had four, or actually we've had five, 500 year flooding events or more since 2015, an Arctic storm, a pandemic we have we have felt the brunt and so the city um, if we look at it is not um, it's not really designed for those kinds of impacts right now and so we're going to have to what i say is we're going to get softer to get stronger greener to get more resilient and in in terms of storytelling it's paramount in my work because we are all working with mental models and some of those mental models were built at a time, a different time in our history as a nation and as a city, where we could afford to have certain kinds of underperforming landscapes that now are actually contributing to climate change or not protecting us from climate change. Lawns are a good example of that. But many people don't know the, the full societal health and environmental costs of lawns. I'm not here to rail against lawns, but. It goes to the fact that if our mental constructs are not aligned with the needs and realities of the moment, we can make poor decisions. So one of the things that um, I think we're on this slide right here. Yeah. So one of the things that um, is most important in storytelling is that you that you go right at the heart of misconceptions. So one of the misconceptions, the biggest misconceptions that I find in my work is that we are not a natural place. Houston, a lot of folks, young folks uh, don't come here, talent, because they say that you know we don't have nature like Austin does or some other places. And I have to remind people that two things, one is Houston is always, its, it's economy has been always primarily based on nature. If you think about the ship, the, 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 the port of Houston, oil, chopping up pieces of land and selling it to other human beings, right? It's always been a nature-based economy, but people don't really conceive of it that way. But it's also a biological hotspot on planet Earth, meaning that it's one of the best places for biodiversity. And a lot of people are shocked by that, but I'm not, because I help to coordinate what's called the City Nature Challenge with the Museum of Science and Bioline Conservancy. That's That's a global challenge where people like you can use an app called iNaturalist to go and document what's alive around them. Well, if you look at that slide, we came in first place in the US for the third year in a row and number three in the world for the number of species that were observed. We are a biological powerhouse, but this is where that construct, that mental model can get in our way. If we really do believe that our nature is lesser than somewhere else, we're not gonna fight to save it. And we'll have all that loss associated with it, right? So that's one bit of a mental construct that needs to be shifted. And so much of my work is just that is to break these old mental models and to dialogue in the mystery with people. Um, And so um, another case in point, uh, yeah, is that flooding is actually our most dangerous environmental threat. Now, flooding is incredibly uh, dangerous and it also is very greatly widening Mm -hmm. inequalities or really daylighting inequalities that were ingrained in there already. But I'm here to tell you that heat is the thing that's gonna undo this city if we don't get a handle on it. So last year I had a chance to go out with the city and the county um, and a group called HARC and um, work with about 80 volunteer scientists to go out and map heat across Houston and Harris County. Now we have a map of where the heat is really building up quickly. And the neighborhood that I'm working in um, showed up to be 17 degrees hotter Fahrenheit than the most leafy affluent neighborhoods. That's very dangerous uh, to the body and, and to the mind, right? So it's, it's this kind of thing that, that reminds me that if we don't get the story right, all the funding, all the, uh, the energy for making change, the things that we need to change the world in positive ways, I'm talking about going forward, We can't do that because we're locked in old models. So storytelling is critical for everything that I do. I always consider it a chief conservation strategy. It's not just about measuring the inputs and outputs and what happens on the ground, but rather are you telling that story right and is it furthering the work. So
0: So there's also this story of science and religion, right? And I think it, they, they've been separated, they've been put back together, they've been each other's devil child. Yeah. And, and I think we're in this moment in the 21st century, especially where science and religion need to make sense of each other. That's right. So what do you how do you make sense of that story? Do you think it's possible to bridge or bring together science and religion?
1: Yeah, several years ago, I worked with a wonderful person named Lisa Brinskelly, who's over here at an evangelical church. And, And we had a conversation with uh, another person named Carol Burris and and other people uh, who's in the Unitarian faith about why is it that we have this disconnect between all the amazing congregations and communities of faith of all different uh, faith traditions in Houston that are doing great environmental work, both here in Houston and internationally in terms of water and air and climate and biodiversity. Why do we have that separation where they're doing great work? We have the secular Uh, groups that are working on these issues and they're doing great work but very rarely do they speak to each other or coordinate any action and I think that is it is because of that fear of endorsement right on the part of the secular conservation environmental community they haven't yet learned the language in some in most cases now there are some really great great bright spots they haven't learned that 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 kind of bridge is not endorsement, right? But what it is, is it is tapping into what people, what motivates people. And the shame of that is twofold. One is they can't have better coordination. But here's another shame of that. Several years ago, I was at an environmental summit here in Houston, and my job was to bring people together around this question of faith and environment and I led roundtable discussions. And I asked people, I said, if you're willing to share, how many of you faith, uh, folks are motivated to wake up and do your work in these secular groups, um, principally from your faith perspective? And I thought, because so many people study science in the environmental community, that that would probably be like 30, 40%. No, it was 87% of the people I talked to in three different groups. So those folks can't also bring their fullness as a person, even the thing that primarily motivates their work, it, into their work in a certain way. So I think that there's a couple of missed opportunities there. I don't think that they are contradictory in any sort of way. I think that they, as Stephen Jay Gould, the, uh, uh, the eminent evolutionary biologist once said that, that these two represent two magisteria, right? That are intersected but each have their forms of authority and knowledge and so i i i think that if we're going to get to this new place move forward for houston and texas and the nation that there's going to have to have to be a very close coordination between these two magisteria it can't work uh, what we're doing is not working fast enough and partially it's because we don't have sometimes the moral authority to do some of these things or the the, the moral interests. So we need to understand the story of why people get motivated and faith is one of those really important stories. So I would love to see more intersection. There is a group now called the Interfaith Environmental Network of Houston. It's trying to move some of that work forward between this bridging of not just houses of worship of different kinds, but also between these faith communities and the secular environmental um, groups.
0: When I think about like, science and religion, they're both ways of making sense of our That's world, right. and the two things that I think are incredibly linked between them is a sense of wonder, yes. a sense of mystery, yes. a sense of this thing exists in front of me, how do I make sense of it? Both science and religion ask that question, and they and science gathers evidence and has a method, and religion tells stories. Mm-hmm. So this is again this kind of, you know but there's a way to make these two copacetic There's a concept that we've been working with in my PhD program called autocosmology. Sometimes it's referred to as cosmogony, but it has to do with the self, how the person or the human sees him or herself in playing out in this grand scheme of evolutionary time. On the one hand, and I showed a similar slide about the Anthropocene a couple of weeks ago, we've done enough harm to shift the planet the geologic structures of the planets, rivers, mountains, forests, animals, so that an entire geologic age could be called the Anthropocene. We're the first species to have affected the earth in this way that an entire era could be named for us. We could take that as like, oh, we're amazing. We could also take that as, wow, that we've done some damage. So on the one hand, I think we're capable of this destruction. On the other hand, I think we're capable of so mm-hmm. much beauty and so much good and so much creativity. And I'd love to ask you these two questions, and we can do one at a time. But one, what are the most important shifts you think we need to make?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And number two, where do you see pockets of goodness?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think that the shifts that we need to make are both cognitive and physical, right? Uh, you know, what Holly is saying about the, uh, the Anthropocene is absolutely true. We have entered into this new geological reality, that um, that really brings to heart a couple things. One is there is no backward on some of these things, right? So we do have to move forward. And what we need to do if we move forward is a couple of cognitive shifts that I think we need to make. One is there is for folks that have little children like us, there is no Plan B. We have to. We have to make this work, right? We have to. We can't even consider the possibility of failure because you're setting yourself up for a lesser place. We're all gonna land as humanity at a certain place. Now, where we land is really up to us and our actions at this point. The second cognitive shift, and this is super, super important, is that we will have to stop referring to people and nature. We even do this in the conservation field. Mm-hmm. That was always a false construct. It's people and the rest of nature. How God chose to have us all here today, you know, I'm, a, I'm an evolutionist, so however he or she or it chose to have us here today chose a pathway that made us so interlinked with the rest of nature and each other that we have just the inkling of how connectedness this is. I was reading a a paper a while back by a Harvard chemist, uh, chemist, and he pointed out the fact that because of the way that that, um, molecules and atoms move and circulate through the planet, that is very, very likely that each one of us sitting here in, uh, in this auditorium today has literally breathed in and out some of the molecules from every single baby that has been born on the planet in the last 18 months. That's a profound thought, but it also signals how intersected and interconnected we are. We also need to consider that as we move to improve ecosystems, and this is a city ecosystem, but any ecosystem that is supporting human health and well being and the health and well being of all the species around us, and there are over 10,000 documented species on iNaturalist for this area, that we need to first have stillness to know that we are ecosystem one. Literally, our bodies are an ecosystem that has more non-human cells in it than it has human cells. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We are home to tens of thousands of species. We ourselves. But when I tell that to people, they go, what do you mean? I'm here in my corporal body and nature's out there. No, 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 no. If you look at the chemicals in your body, if you look at the bacteria, the worm, all that stuff, you are literally soaking and being soaked through by the rest of nature. So the, the biggest shift that we will have to make if we are to survive on this planet is that we will fully embrace and act like we are part of nature and that we're wholly dependent on nature. When I think of um, all these grand schemes to go to interstellar space and go set up colonies on Mars and, and, and the moon, I think it's a lovely vision. And if you look at the I'm a huge space fan. You won't find a bigger space nerd than me. Maybe Diego. Maybe Diego, my son. <laughs> but really what we're trying to do is leave an oasis in space and go live on a dead rock that's trying to kill us. If thats I mean, really, if you think about it, or where we can go and live underground for the rest of our existence. Is that really a plan B? For us, I don't think it is. I think it's a terrible plan B. I tend to think, I tell people that that's like being in COVID lockdown without the ability to go walk outside or go to the beach permanently. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's think about that for a second. So we need to stop telling ourselves these false stories, that there's new, this new frontier somewhere that's going to save us and redeem us and we're going to redeem that place. We are in nature. It's a beautiful thing. And if we embrace it for what it is and the gift that God has given us, we're gonna be healthier, happier, and smarter uh, in the process. So I think that as we make these shifts cognitively, we also need to make shifts physically. And what I mean by that is, in our cities and our suburbs, there are many underperforming, frankly, toxic landscapes. Every time we, for instance, mow any lawn, a lot of people don't know how dirty lawnmowers are. Running a lawnmower, for one hour is the equivalent of driving a truck in terms of the pollution for 500 miles. Now multiply that by all the yards and parks and power lines we mow, we are literally creating a toxic space for ourselves, unnecessarily. So we're gonna have to not think that um, that having this kind of Downton Abbey style <laughs> landscape is what's in our best interests. We're gonna to have to think about what are those landscapes, what should the city look like differently to be healthier but also to respond to these climate disasters differently. Can't, it can't work differently if it doesn't look differently. City needs to look differently, right? And then the last thing is save biodiversity wherever and whenever we can. One of these links to nature that a lot of people don't know is that when we lose species, we lose the prospect of our future. So there was a recent study that was done, I think a year and a half ago. And it said by mid-century, if we continue this kind of rapacious pattern of destroying habitats across the the world through pollution and deforestation and everything, we may lose a million species. And some people, and it showed up, I remember, it showed up in the Chronicle on page 23. But the scientists who looked at that number and then looked at the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which is really how do we keep a sustainable planet for human beings that fights poverty, that fights inequity, 80% of those dimensions would be negatively impacted if we lose those one million species. As the butterflies go, we go. And that's not hyperbole, that's science. So if we lose those things, we will have a much harder time saving ourselves and' it's not, that's not metaphorical. That is literal. So um, any place that you could have a positive impact for biodiversity is a place where you're helping humanity.
0: So you have this is you, they pet plant a pocket prairie every year mm-hmm. in their front yard. So you like people will go to Jaime and Katie's yard and take <laughs> pictures in the blue bonnets. Yeah. In like on their front lawn, you get a lot of strangers going, oh, look what we found, a blue bonnet sanctuary on Hatton Street. <laughs> oh, I just told everyone where you live. Oh, my But, God. Um, but anyways, um, so I think that, you know, that's just like one small thing I that mean. you guys do every year to really say we're going to work with this cycle of right. um, natural rhythms. Um yeah, one time we talked about if everybody planted just a small garden. Right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of nostalgia around World War II, and I yeah. don't want to diminish it, but I also don't want to over um, overaggrandize it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things was these victory gardens, right? That's and right. Um, and those were in Europe, and they were in the states, and mm-hmm. it, this this idea that we could just plant basil. You know, you could just plant. I, I had this thought. Like we used to have chickens. We had six chickens, and Eventually, they stopped laying, and really, honestly, six chickens wasn't enough to even feed a family of five because they're very moody. They have these <laughs> lay times, and then they go off of it for three months, and then they kind of look at you like, "Where's my food?" and and then and then they stop, and then they start laying again. And um, I, but it was so cool to have eggs in the city yeah. that were just from my chickens, and that and I couldn't figure out how to make mm-hmm. them live with my vegetable garden too because they ate everything I planted, but. You know, I'm still learning. Um, all of that to say that yeah. there are these little, tiny, sustainable things. And no, it's not totally legal to have chickens inside the city, but people <laughs> in the Heights don't care. It just depends on who your neighbors are. Um, so you can report me or not. They're all dead now. Um, but, this, but this is, you know, these are small ways that we can yeah. sort of impact yeah. what's happening and being aware of collecting rainwater. I have a barrel of like a 250-gallon rainwater Um, collector that I just water this one bed Mm -hmm. with and it's amazing to go oh what I'm using here has an impact on something that Mm -hmm. sustains Mm -hmm. and I I know that seems small but it's a huge realization of how interconnected we are what about pockets of goodness where do you see things happen I just named your pocket of goodness
1: yeah
0: (laughs) Um where do you see things happening in the city
1: Well, I think I think that there's a lot of pockets, bright spots that are working. Um, You know, sometimes I work with really some of the world-class scientists around conservation around the world, and sometimes we really get in this mentality like. We get a metric, we need to store this many gigatons of carbon, or we need to save this many acres of forest, or we need to these huge, massive numbers that are, frankly, not understandable for a lot of people. Fortunately, we have very generous folks that, that support us in so many different ways to get that done. And, and sometimes we think, well, we got to do that, and this piddly stuff, if you, know, if you plant this little pocket prairie, or the, the, ah, it doesn't count. But we forget that human beings are asked to make these behavioral changes, and human beings need to touch and feel and see these things. So it's not that we need to save these giant landscapes and seascapes, or we need to do these smaller personal affirmations of our stewardship. We need both, and they're highly intersected, I believe. And if we can get more people to do things, in their yard on their apartment patio along power lines here around the city i fully believe in the power of people upwelling that good to larger scales right so it is an intersected thing and i think if we could you know press a switch and do all the big stuff but all the people aren't engaged they're not inspired i'm not sure how durable all that stuff would be anyway so let's This fulfilled the goodness from the heart of the city all the way out to Galveston Bay and all the different habitats, right? So in terms of the goodness, um, the bright spots, one of the things we were highly engaged, those of us who worked on the Houston's first resilience plan and climate action plan, is it was a very big call to use nature as a solution for many of these things, right? So the way that we're all having conversations in the city is, okay, we have these policies and procedures and departments that aren't used to doing things like this. So how do we change those to fit the time? How do we produce the seed sources and the tree stocks to get where we need? So um, you know, there are, there are uh, schoolyard greening projects that are transforming what are otherwise very non-sustainable landscapes into places that soak up more water, more carbon, that get mowed less. I'm working on a project right now. That I, uh, you know, It's still in development, but it's a preschool where we're putting in like four acres of prairie wetlands instead of getting mowed 42 times a year, it's gonna get mowed once to twice a year. It'll soak up water that won't go out into the community. It'll soak up carbon from the air. And for these kids that are in a slower income situation that live in apartment complexes, they're gonna see real nature. They'll see migratory birds. They will maybe even see fireflies because we have like night sky friendly lighting that goes off at night and doesn't mess up the animal's circadian rhythm. So it's really about creating these pockets of good and then intersecting or interconnecting them with other pockets of good one of the things that a lot of people don't know mental construct right a lot of young talented folks who don't come here is we're about to complete as a community through the work of the houston parks board the largest metropolitan trail system in the country by greenways 2020. And now they're looking with partners to connect north and south to connect all that stuff up. And it's gonna be a massive habitat and trail system. Um, so there are a lot of bright spots. The, the call is to start connecting those uh, and also to connecting different suites of people that maybe haven't been connected with those kinds of projects before, right? Um, certain, uh, certain communities that are socially vulnerable, certain racial minorities. Uh, faith community. We need to get everybody on board because this is a generational challenge. So I think that there are a lot of bright spots. Weaving the bright spots and getting people to know about the bright spots is super important.
0: Yeah, you had a slide, yeah, somewhere in there. Maybe you'll get to it later. Is it the one? Uh,
1: if you can go back yeah. uh, a couple. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is that
1: one. Let me go back to this one. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of intersecting all of this stuff. Um, If you say I'm going to build a habitat for the monarch butterfly or to connect people to history and ground them in place, which is a lot of my work, is where do you live on the planet? You may be a global citizen, but you live here in Houston, Texas, with a specific and very deep cultural history that goes back not to 1836, but 11,000 years from the time that indigenous people first inhabited this place. This is not a new city. This is a very ancient place. Mental construct. And and this graph is really my best attempt at looking at how I conceive my work now. There is a concept called One Health, and it basically is built on a very simple premise. The fates of humans, the environment, and biodiversity and animals is all so finely intersected that when you try to work on just one piece, it's likely to cause you to make errors. And so what you can do in planning, in practice, in teaching, is teach this way don't be kind of like oh yeah we'll get to all that stuff later but say every time we make a change in our nature it's going to have an impact in one of these three circles and because they're intersected we have to consider all those things and one of the things that's that i've put on here is uh, this call out for diversity equity inclusion and justice because those are fundamental to human health and thriving Without those, it's impossible to close equity gaps. It's impossible to get to better health outcomes. We have zip codes in the city where your place where you live, your zip code, determines part of how long you're going to live. And that gap between the longest-lived zip codes and the shortest is 20 years average life expectancy. Mm. Well, that's not a moral thing for us to see and not do anything about. And part of that inequity is based on what we do with nature, who has it and who doesn't have it, right? So we have to make this cognitive shift to say, if we want a sustainable place, a healthy place, a fair place, it has to look like it. It's gotta feel like it. It's gotta be planted like it. So anyway, One Health is something I'm still get, getting my mind around, but it's also this notion here in the outer ring. I tell people that the present the past, and the future are always negotiating to to figure out what the now is. I can't do my work without knowing the deep cultural and indigenous history of this place. I could, but I'm going to make mistakes. I can't plan for what I'm doing without thinking about who those descendants are going to be and what they're going to need 20 or 30 years from now. I could, but I'm going to make mistakes. So it's in constant negotiation, and we need to think about that a little bit more closely because we're very short time frame as a society.
0: Mm. One of the things we were talking about um, this week is what can communities of faith or uh, mm-hmm. religious communities do? How do we approach this topic? And yeah. one of the things I, I think we have to give up is that humans were somehow placed here yeah. so, com- as complete and whole beings. Mm-hmm. That, as Jaime is saying, it's like no, we are. Earthlings, just like every other thing, that everything on this planet is an earthling. And I think one of the things that, as you guys know, doing my work in cosmology and philosophy, and I think one of the things that cosmology gives us, as well as um, deep-time evolution and really understanding deep-time evolution, is this humbling and awesome responsibility or reality that we are here because of everything else that was. Mm -hmm. And we evolved out of that life force, from the same life force as the smallest microbe in the biggest mountain. That's right. We're we're part of that life force. This, of course, I think is a scientific idea. And it's also Mm -hmm. a profoundly spiritual one. That's right. To see that we are fluid with all of these other things. And I don't mean spiritual just in the sort of God Jesus sense, but in this very deep sense of belonging. I, I believe that human belonging is one of our fundamental needs. If we don't have a sense of belonging, we're we're unrooted. Mm-hmm. We become so focused on I mm-hmm. that we forget our we. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, Bill and I have brought up many, many times this man, Martin Buber, wonderful philosopher. And I do recommend I am thou. It's it's not too dense, but it's it's philosophy written. And he is, he conceived of a way of not just seeing, but also being that he called I thou. And if we see every other thing, not only as an extension of the sacred mystery, but also as part of this evolutionary process, then we, we can learn to see that I am because you are, you are because I am, and that creates the we. And this comes from a man who lived, if you just look at when he lived, during World War I and during World War II in Europe, He lived during some of the most atrocious times in human history and still was able to conceive of a way of belonging and kinship that meant that we belong to one another that we can as i see you you see me that famous meister eckhart line that says the eye with which i see god is the same eye with which god sees me Mm -hmm. that's his fundamental philosophy you thought you'd be off the hook here, but it has something to do with a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> you're welcome, Bill, if you're watching. Um, but it really it's really just sitting into that, sitting into that presence where you are. One of the sort of rooting things that I've um, done, and it's especially when I, my mind is going a million miles an hour, and I'm keeping up with three kids, and I'm trying to write a dissertation, um, I... I go, what is right here around me that mm-hmm. I can notice? Mm-hmm. What are three things I can notice that just bring me right back to this moment? I keep a little bowl of natural objects on my table. Mm-hmm. You probably have seen it, yeah. but it's, it's different shells and rocks and just beautiful little objects that I can hold and feel part of nature in my hand. Mm-hmm. I love telling my kids that whenever you hold a rock, you're holding something that's thousands and thousands of mm-hmm. years old. That's really cool. So I think once we learn to love ourselves, and I think paradoxically it sometimes happens, we learn to love ourselves because someone else reflects love back to Mm -hmm. us. It doesn't just spring up out of us, this self-love. That is a challenge for me. How do I love myself? But it's really that experiencing that love, that gaze from someone else can also give us an idea of our own worth. And this idea, I think that empathy is a muscle. Like every other muscle, empathy needs to be worked. It needs to be developed. And our empathy for the biodiversity of this space, our empathy for the creatures that live in um, underground that are creating the microbes for the soil that keep us alive, giving thanks to those tiny beings that we will never see is really part of this empathy no. Where am I, What is the Hindu tradition of throwing rice around a building? Uh, when a building is constructed, there's a rice ceremony where rice is spread around the building for all of the teeny tiny creatures that we'll never see that keep that land going. That's just, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, there's this idea of if we look at each other, if we look at nature, if we look at other beings with disgust, If we look at the impoverished neighborhoods in our very city, not even a stone's throw from here, just Mm -hmm. across 288, Mm -hmm. just down 59. If we look on that as gross, we're seeing ourselves as gross. And that's empathy. What do they need? What do we need? How can we sort of share these resources so that they become thou, not it? And this doesn't mean that our empathy muscle has to be completely fit and strong and huge in order to do something. A lot of times we get paralyzed when we think I have to get to a certain place to do something. I have to be a better spiritual person in order to do something meaningful. I have to have an hour-long spiritual practice every day in order to do something meaningful. I think they come in parallel. We do as we learn as we grow, and our doing becomes more and more true to our true selves as we go, as we grow that muscle of empathy. I think one of the things that has become, being a conscientious consumer is hard. Mm -hmm. It's very hard. I mean, you know, any of us who shop at Target, we know that we're buying things that were made somewhere in China or Mm -hmm. Thailand or Cambodia and, and probably by small children and people who are underpaid. So it's impossible to be a conscientious consumer all of the time. But our consumer, I've noticed that our consumer habits have changed the way things are being done. We see more um, companies that make products out of recycled materials. These shoes are made from recycled plastics. So our, our, our consumer habits start to drive um, the changes in economy, uh, our demand for, for better resource things begins to change and shift. We've seen a huge growth, if any of you have investment, so there's a huge growth now in impact investing that has an impact on environmental, social, and governance. Mm-hmm. These are ways that the economy has responded to the demand, and saying, "I think we need to do better." Mm-hmm. And I think as consumers, we have a lot of power.
1: Yes, yeah. I think I think we absolutely do. Um, you know, I'm reminded of a couple of things um, in terms of connection.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I first planted the pocket prairie thinking. Oh, this is going to be for the bees and the butterflies, and it's going to be a great place for you know, people to see the beauty and the connectivity of nature. What I've what I quickly found out, it was actually a trick to talk with my neighbors who I don't know. We've gotten to a very weird place. I was listening to a Live Life Kit podcast the other day about how to be a more conscientious more conscientious neighbor. And the podcast producer mentioned the fact that. She had been living in her house for seven years and really didn't know the people around her. I think this is one of the first times in human history where we're feeling this real disconnect from literally the people around us. And I, as the father of a seven-year-old, I think, is it right for me to have him in a space or a block where he doesn't know his neighbors? That's really not a, it's an inhumane thing. And so when we talk about nature and connectivity in this pocket prairie, people constantly come and ask me questions. We start this dialogue. We start talking about what they can do in their yard. They come take pictures with their dog or their kid. But here's a real tell. A lot of times I come home in the spring. Some beautiful child, is, uh, their parent is taking a picture. And as soon as I drive up, what happens? Do they greet me? They do not greet me. They take their kid up and they say, I'm so sorry, I'm taking a picture in your yard. And I walk up to them and I say, this is not my yard. This is our yard. And they go, well, what, do you, what do you mean? Because private land ownership has warped our ability to think of ourselves as community members. When many of us were kids, and I know a lot of people in this room will have this sentiment, we never asked anybody to go in their yard and drink out of a hose.
0: We just did it.
1: We just did it.
0: And we drank out of hoses. And we which knew like gross. the different
1: flavors of rust from the <laughs> yeah. different hoses. Right? <laughs> I was gonna
0: say like oh this is good this is artisan
1: <laughs> uh, rust right? <laughs> yeah. Well, we've gotten away from that. Yeah. We have staked out our our forts. And I think there's a sadness to that. But here's the thing about nature: is the place where people mix. If you go to Herman Park, you'll have people of every economic and ethnic. Um, background you can think of it's one of the only places where our society our civic society mixes and so nature is not only all these beautiful things for connectivity uh, in terms of spiritual and getting these ecological performances we need it's one of our great hopes that we will stay together as a people that is very fractious right now it's the place where we can mix right so that connection in nature and what you're talking about, in terms of like linking to people across the world and making sure that our comfort doesn't come from their discomfort, is super important to see ourselves in that light. So, I think that's right. And and one other thing I didn't mention earlier, in terms of thinking about and how, and we'll get into this in a second. Sort of put this because I hadn't really thought about this before. Holly really pressed me to think about this because she's she's incredibly like. Consider it. She thinks about a lot of different things and gets pushes you, which is great. Think about,
0: Said my think brother about the Bible. So I have, a,
1: I have a, this green Bible, right? And it, and it kind of puts words in green that are referential to the earth, to nature, to things like that. Here's the, what I was reading through this. It occurred to me. Where did Jesus teach? Did he teach mostly in synagogues? Note, so most of, the, most of the New Testament, in terms of his ministry, he literally was saying, if you want to hear the voice of God, come out to the lake, go up to the hill, hear me in the garden, let me interact with nature. So literally to hear the voice of God in a literal sense in that way, you needed to go out into nature. So I love beautiful sanctuaries like this. I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church, and we have a sanctuary but where I hear God the clearest is outside. And also think about this, in terms of what kind of ancestor you wanna be, think about all the nature metaphors that Jesus uses. Why did he use those? Could be that we were mostly in agrarian society back then, or it could be that he knew in a very changing world that this was going to be a constant, that we are a part of nature and that would carry into the future. But here's the challenge, the, I'm, I'm very active in the Texas Children Nature movement. just came from the, the state conference where we met with a whole bunch of people. The average school child in Texas today spends 10 or less minutes outdoors in unstructured playtime a day. They also spend, on average, 50 hours on a screen. So if children don't know how nature works, how gardening works, how are they supposed to understand any of these metaphors that Jesus is saying? So it's kind of a challenge to our faith as well as the planet in terms of rootedness and understanding. So I just wanted to to bring that up because it occurred to me because Holly had me thinking about all these things that, that, that this whole nature thing is not a sideline.
0: Well, Thich Nhat Hanh, wonderful Buddhist, mm-hmm. engaged Buddhist who really brought Buddhism to the West, has a practice that I think... Both Bill and I have referenced in here before of gratitude that when Mm. I'm drinking this coffee, it's connected to so many parts of the world where the coffee was grown, who picked it, (laughs) who roasted it, who sent it, packaged it, where this cup was made. There are so many aspects just in drinking this one cup of Mm -hmm. coffee that I'm connected to. And in his practice, he goes all the way back to, you know, the the sun that nourished the beans, the water that that drenched them to make this cup of coffee possible. And for that, I give gratitude. Even that practice is just like, oh, wow, the whole world is in this cup of coffee. And for me, that's humbling. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that I think we've become really addicted to is, and I want to be really careful because I don't think individualism is all bad. I'm trying to rush through this slide because we didn't really use it. But um, is that we've become really addicted to the idea that I matter more than everything else. And the individual is made up of a psychological, a biological, Mm -hmm. and a sociological interconnection. And that makes the self. Right? So that's how I understand me in the world. And those are our typical medical and psychological models that put together biological, psychological, and sociological. And it is so important to have ego strength. It is so important to know who I, Holly, am in this world so that I know what I bring my gifts to and how to bring them. But it is also important, and you all hear me say this a lot, to have this embedded sense. That i'm embedded in mm-hmm. i would change this model to add the ecology mm-hmm. to add the cosmology to add the entire system that we are part of and that we bring with us into every space that we operate in so there's a there's a, a project that i really highly recommend i i think you sh- would enjoy it too which is called the human energy project and it's one of my professors ryan swim is part of it and he is really thinking about what is the human energy here on earth and how do we harness it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Teilhard de Chardin said, if we can harness the energies of the human, we can discover fire again, because that's how powerful we are and we can create love. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I'd like to ask you about, and this is where we'll close out, we have a few more minutes, is we have, there's this concept of migrations, right, or, sorry, murmurations, murmurations right? right? And murmurations, the, the starlings, um, speak to the seven starlings on their left, and the seven starlings on their right, and they stay in sync with these little micro messages that they get so that they create this swirling magical dance Mm -hmm. of a murmuration, and they all stay in sync so that one doesn't get eaten by the peregrine falcon. Okay, we have that ability as uh, human beings too, and many Native American tribes, Mm -hmm. there is a a thinking around seven generations back, so we get wisdom from our ancestors, Mm -hmm. and we think seven generations forward. What would you want to leave? What is the legacy you want to leave for Diego, for seven generations from Mm -hmm. Jaime Gonzalez?
1: Wow. End with an easy one. Uh, Okay, we're done. (laughs) i think I think a chance. That's Mm -hmm. what I want to leave him with. I want him to have a chance at having not what we had, because what we had in many ways was based on, based on an unsustainable model. What I want him to have a chance at is connectivity to others and a, uh, and a chance to have a world that is supporting his mental, physical, wealth, uh, spiritual and cultural well-being, but in the sense that it's not all about him like you were talking about. It is, does he see himself as part of a broader group of folks with responsibilities uh, to those folks as well. So I want to leave him with, a, with as healthy a planet as we all can do, and with, uh, with maybe a, a, a bunch of questions. That's, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't want to leave him with a bunch of answers. I want him to be able to ask the right questions, right? Because I think that we are in a place where we have so many challenges, politically, socially, environmentally, that we need to become skeptical. We need to ask questions of old models. We need to have the right questions and not fall into orthodoxy because orthodoxy is not nimble and it's not quick enough to deal with these challenges. But also, I don't wanna leave you on a negative note. There is a possibility that for our kids, if we rethink about these things, and not just we, but the younger people who are coming up and demanding voice because it's gonna be their world and, and And, you know, praise God for that, because it it is their world and they need to show leadership now because it's not going quick enough. I, I can see a world that is better in sync, more connected, that really calls out to the fact that that we need to recreate the world in a better place. One instance of that is this city is not designed for us. It's not. It's not designed for the social primate that has the spiritual side that needs to connect with each other, that needs to talk to each other, that needs to be soaking in nature. It's designed for cars. <laughs> okay? We designed ourselves a city that's not designed for us. Okay, So we need to think about that very, in a very hard way. So at some point, we'll get back to the old Houston in some ways that had lots of plazas and courtyards for people to gather and talk to each other we will break up some of the grid of driving lanes and think about this city in a different way. So if I come back, you know, when, when my son is, you know, eighty years old, we might see a very resilient, beautiful green city that looks a lot more like a garden with lots of places for all of us to mix. So yes. just a chance is what I want to leave him with. And and your sons as well, just a chance.
0: Hi mate, I'm so glad you were here today. I love you, brother, and I'm thankful that y'all came and remember this week that no matter where you go, no matter what you do, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.